citizens, and welcome to Unknown. Jason McClellan. I'm here with Maureen Ellsbury, Ryan Sprague, and Shane Hurd today. Thanks for hanging out with us. We've reached the end of another year and the end of a decade. As hard as it might be to believe, you'll soon be reading the year 2020 on your calendar. That's crazy. So since we're closing out a decade, today we're going to run down some of the top UFO-related stories from this past decade. Now, This type of show is always a bit of a challenge for us to put together because so much happens during the span of a year, let alone a decade. So narrowing it down to the top 10 stories is difficult to say the least, but we've managed to do that for you today. So let's get to it. Ryan, why don't you get us started off? Yeah, absolutely. So the first one we're going to cover here is uh, back in 2001, and this is the Gary McKinnon case. I'm sure that name uh, definitely rings a bell with a lot of people out there. But for anyone who doesn't know who this guy is, he was an IT expert in England who in 2001 and 2002, uh, he spent a lot of his free time hacking and breaching security defenses of NASA and uh, other U.S. military networks. And he said that he found a document entitled, quote unquote, non-terrestrial officers, which was pretty intriguing. If you ask me, it was sort of like this Excel sheet that he recalls had the ranks and names of unknown individuals on it. So when he tried to search for the names of the ships, he was unable to find any any mention of these people uh, publicly, that is. And uh, it made him believe that it was some sort of secret space program. So he started talking about this stuff. Uh, Meanwhile, his hacking would eventually be discovered, and he was arrested in late 2002 in England. And he was said to have caused over hundreds of thousands of dollars in security breaches and damage. And following his arrest, he was also subject to a lengthy extradition battle. The U.S. wanted to punish him for the cyber crimes on U.S. computers and intelligence agencies and such. So uh, he easily could have spent almost 70 years in jail for this. But in 2012, the newly appointed Prime Minister, Theresa May, she did not grant the extradition because of McKinnon's history with depression, and he was also suffering from Asperger's syndrome, and it would be extremely detrimental to his health, and it would make him highly suicidal, So, uh, and it would go against his human rights, so she decided not to do that. Uh, but since then, McKinnon had to pay very high legal fees. And he is never allowed in the U.S. ever again. And uh, I I actually got to speak with McKinnon briefly uh, after all this happened to see what he was up to. And now he is doing the IT thing again. He's working for his own company in, you know, basically doing what he used to do, hacking. He's now working with cybersecurity. So it's kind (laughs) of like one of these, uh, you know, cases where the – 
the government will hire ex-cons to help them. It's pretty pretty cool, I guess. But uh, every now and again, he talks about this stuff and uh, what he found on those U.S. computers. And to this day, we still will never know what, you know, non-terrestrial officers actually means. Well, and this was such a long, drawn-out saga, the Gary McKinnon saga. Like Mm -hmm. you said, started, you know, in the early 2000s, but the extradition battle was still raging on in this past decade. In 2010, 2011, the... uh, the headlines were nonstop. I mean, it seemed like almost every week we were hearing a new, new development in the Gary McKinnon case. And his mother was, was his really leading the charge. He was his biggest mm-hmm. av- advocate and leading the fight um, against extradition. So that, that whole battle, you know, the U.S. trying to get him extradited and hearing all the, the health issues, the testimony, and then Theresa May finally saying, nope, not going to happen. Like that was just generating tons and tons and tons of mainstream headlines. So it was it was kind of fun to follow along. Yeah, it was so cool, again, to see like a mainstream story going on between countries, all because a guy wanted to hack into computers to find out shit on UFOs. Right. I think it's so cool. I love it. I love it. Yeah, and think too of the the timing of it. This was pre Snowden and pre WikiLeaks, mm-hmm, you know, right. and ha- how it was handled, you know, was in, in that context. It'd be kind of interesting to see how it all be treated now, you know, if it if it were to have occurred now after all of that. Maybe, I mean, the 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 U.S. was they were rabid, man. They wanted him. They wanted him bad. And, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know if they, if they would go after him as hard, uh, today as, as they did back then, but it is really fascinating. The, the fact that it was a UFO story. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. And there, there was, uh, you know, some speculation because a bunch of documents were released FOIA requests and nobody has exactly found the right documents to sort of verify all his claims, which makes you wonder you know, where are they? And people are still actively trying to research this. And I think we'll see this stretch into 2020 and beyond. Yeah. And that's a good point. I mean, that's cool. Shane, that's a big, big difference. Yeah. With WikiLeaks and stuff. I mean, if we, if we had what he discovered, that would be amazing, right? These transfer yeah. lists of people going to the USS Hill and Cutter and the USS LeMay, <laughs> like, you know, that's really huge stuff. But again, we don't have any of that because he didn't save any of that. And he also says he was high when he was doing this. So his memory's a little fuzzy too. And <laughs> so th- there's a lot of stuff, but it's, it's incredible claims. It would be great if we had, you know, some WikiLeaks like files that we could look at, but there's nothing. Yeah. I mean, it is fascinating and it, it is plausible, you know, that, that he saw what he says he saw, but without any evidence, it is just that frustrating thing with ufology, man. You, you just, you can't get your hands around any friggin' proof, you know, it's so frustrating. Um, but, you know, I think it's plausible and I think, you know, maybe he saw stuff, maybe he didn't. I don't, I don't know, well, but it is pretty curious how, how hard the government went after him for it. Yeah. And that, that certainly fuels the fire, right? And gets the conspiracies yeah. going, you know, well, why would they go so hard after him if he didn't actually find what he says he found? Why would they care? But again, he did hack into military computers and cause all sorts of damage. They're not just yeah, going to yeah. go, oh, that's okay. You stay over there and everything's fine. <laughs> we, we, we'll forget it. Water under the bridge. 
He must also <laughs> be on a lot of legal hooks to where you notice like he has not uh, spoken about the case and or, uh, you know, gone, done the TV circuit or anything mm-hmm. like that or started hopping around conferences. Well, he in, has a little bit. Uh, the UFO circuit. He but has not, a little not bit. Not significantly. Right. Yeah, I mean, they've they've certainly had him at like contact in the desert and stuff like they they there are these conferences what? where they they Wait have a minute. they have him. How did he get to the U.S. to go to contact in the desert? They, no, they do didn't. live video. They oh, do like God, a live yeah. live video. All right. I was like, come yeah. on, guys. <laughs> but yeah, no, he's he's certainly done that. But yeah, but, but not, not to the to extent like that you're a, saying, right? Yeah, not to the the sort of um, you can tell he's really trying to push the yeah. envelope and take advantage of um, yeah. the UFO phenomena circuit kind of thing. And his right. newly sure found fame. Yeah, it's a good point. It's <laughs> yeah. a really good point. All right, let's move on to the next one on our list. And you guys might not agree with me on this one, but I'm including Frank Kimbler as one of the biggest stories of the decade. And here's why. So Frank made headlines multiple times during the decade. And if you aren't familiar with him, Frank is a geologist and an instructor at the New Mexico Military Institute in Roswell, New Mexico. Back in 2010, he began making trips out to a remote area of the desert that is thought to be near where UFO supposedly crashed back in 1947. And being a scientist, Frank wanted to find physical evidence. So he used a metal detector and he found what he was looking for. He managed to find several small pieces of material. He submitted material for analysis. And in one of the first tests he had done, his response to the results was, quote, either the lab made an analytical error or the material is not from Earth, end quote. He was excited by the isotopic analysis, and he continued working to get initial testing done throughout the decade. And then you might remember that in 2018, there was the whole drama with the Bureau of Land Management when they called Frank in for a meeting and there was the threat of his material being confiscated. Fortunately, Frank still has his Roswell material, but that incident generated some buzz. And I mean, there were so many mainstream headlines about that and about Frank's previous work and the, the test results and the claims made about this strange Roswell material. So that really, really breached mainstream press around the world, generated a lot of headlines throughout the decade. And then at the beginning of 2019, Ryan got to get involved with this material. Right, Ryan? <laughs> yeah, I got my hands all over this one. Yeah. yeah. No, I love Frank to death, and I think it's incredible the dedication he has to trying to find the truth behind Roswell. I mean, I've spoken about this in the past. It's amazing the way he was able to locate the area first and foremost. Uh, And then I also got his materials tested, came up with vastly different results from his first tests. But that's what science is like. You got to. You got to get this stuff reviewed over and over and over again. And uh, I I think it's fascinating. Whatever Frank found out there is definitely extraordinary. I I can that's all I can really say. It might not be extraterrestrial, but what we found out was that whatever that metal was, it should not have been in that desert in 1947. I can tell you that much. Uh, Hopefully more info on that in 2020. But um, no, I think this is amazing. We know now that uh, the feds, I think, were were monitoring Frank and his like social networks. And even a bunch of our names came up in those files because we were talking to Frank about it. So a little freaky, but uh, I guess that's... um, that's points for us. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I think that 
this case is really awesome because what it does is it illustrates the importance of having true scientific investigation and that it actually yields stuff. So, right, he he was able to find those metallic fragments because he was a geologist, Mm -hmm. not because he, he was just a dude out there that spent the time. I mean, there was science behind that. And that was well illustrated on your show, Ryan, on Mysteries Decoded. And and so I thought, hey, that was very intriguing. And then, you know, he's got the samples. He's handling them property, uh, properly. And then, you know, there's something there, physical evidence. I mean, how scant is physical evidence, right? And so he's got that. And, you know, it has been analyzed. And there's more there available to continue the analysis. So, I mean, to me, it just – his case really illustrates – the value of true science and getting the right people involved in this thing, and it will yield, you know, tangible results. I think another good point uh, to feed off of that, Shane, is that, you know, what's happening here is everyone says, oh, Roswell's such an old case. But when you look at all these old cases that have never really been solved or are still considered by most to be unsolved, that there's still sometimes magic and if we, yeah. you know, yeah. put the effort in and the science in, like you said, that we might be able to find clues that help shed light on uh, these items that are still anomalous. And, um, yeah, it you may think, oh, it's, you know, that happened in 1947. Nothing will be out there. But you'd be surprised how stuff moves around, uh, you know, shifts down because of, uh, you know, changing landscape and water and everything mm-hmm. else and and how you can still manage to potentially find clues uh, yeah. or pieces of the puzzle. That was exactly yeah, no, he's the no exact doubt. approach too, and that's why he was successful. It was so awesome. Uh, I yeah, we we love Frank. And again, like you said, Shane, it's such a great point that in the UFO world, in the UFO field, tangible physical evidence is scarce. So when you have a case that has that, it's incredibly exciting and there's still stuff going on with this case. So Yep. I and Frank's just a cool dude anyway. Frank is awesome. <laughs> yeah. All right. Did Frank send you guys money that I just somehow did not get? <laughs> <laughs> you know Check you agree. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to the next one on the list. Shane, you got the next one. All right. Um, This is the – I'm going to read a little bit on this thing. This is the UFO incident that began about 9.20 p.m. on the evening of April 25, 2013 at the Rafael Hernandez Airport in Aguadilla, Puerto Rico. So many of you may have um, remember the video from this. But what it did is it included the crew of a DHC-8 turboprop aircraft from the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency, which is a division of um, the Department of Homeland Security. And basically what happened is uh, this flight recorded um, a thermal imaging camera on uh, a DH aircraft, recorded um, uh, an object that exhibited characteristics that cannot be explained by known aircraft for natural phenomena. And so this thing, it moved through buildings and through trees and eventually over the ocean. And then uh, the object appears to go in and out of the ocean without slowing down. And at the end of the video, it's either joined by another object or it breaks in two. 
And this uh, case was uh, analyzed thoroughly by the Scientific Coalition uh, for Ufology, and they kind of came up with this statement here I thought was great that kind of encapsulates the whole thing. It says, there is no explanation for an object capable of traveling underwater at over 90 miles per hour with minimal impact as it enters the water. Uh, through the air at 120 miles per hour at low altitude, through a residential area without navigation lights, and finally to be able of splitting into two separate objects. No bird, no balloon, no aircraft, and no known drones have that capability. And uh, I'll just mention, if you want to read the report, or if anyone does out there, um, it's like a 161-page report, and it's on um, the website Explore scu.org and you can get the whole report yourself yeah that group certainly did the most robust look into that case and that case at the time made substantial headlines because you know for obvious reasons as we uh know very well the public and the media love ufo videos and certainly love ufo videos when they're coming from a military source and that's what we had in this case so that was a great example of a military ufo video being circulated media ran wild with it and people ate it up i remember getting that link to the uh probably morgan beale or someone sent us the link yeah. to the 161 page document and <laughs> yeah. i thought oh shit am i gonna have to read this <laughs> yes <laughs> And it's I, mean, technical. I, I, I worked on it, but it's it very is technical. Yeah, it's, and it's good. And, and that's, that's a positive thing too. Yeah. Though, you know. Yeah. I think like just the, the maneuvers alone in the, that were displayed in the video, I, I don't know if it's the same for you guys, but sometimes when I, I know these videos are coming from like the government or the military, um, I'm, I almost get a little scared to watch it because I, I, we can usually figure out within moments like, oh, well, it, it was this or it wasn't this. Um, I'm afraid to look at videos like this because I really think sometimes my paradigm is going to get shifted. <laughs> and this video really was one of those ones early on before all the Tic Tacs and all that crap yes. um, that this one was like, oh, my God, this could blow the lid wide open. But, you know, just yeah. like any story, it kind of fades into obscurity within weeks in today's world so yeah yeah and that's a really good point ryan (laughs) Mm because because we just look at uh how big of a a mess like you said and then it kind of drifted off into obscurity and and is that going to happen with the tic tac ufos or has there now been such a big deal about it that it'll remain you know stay the test of time I think it's human nature and we see it with every story that comes along, you know, whether it's UFOs or something in pop culture or anything else, (laughs) you know, something's gigantic earth shattering news and it it must get your attention right now. And everybody's talking about it. And a couple of weeks later, it's gone. So, yeah. But, you know, if you're careful and you think about it, so many of these things are are connected through history. Right. Even like, you know, we talked about Frank and, you know, that happened in 47. But here, here we are in 2019, almost 2020. And there's still evidence yielded or like with this case, you know, the fact that 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 object entered both the air and then the water to me, that that relates directly to what um you know happened with the Nimitz case and, and, and the tic tac and the, the yeah. tips um conclusion that look this these things are transmedium. This is one of like the five important aspects of identifying a true UFO, right? 
uh, as as outlined by ATIP, and that one is that they have transmedian capabilities, so they can fly in space, air, and water. Now, in the Aguadilla case, obviously, it was just observed that it entered both air and water, but still, that's remarkable because even at 95 miles an hour, I think is what they clocked it at underwater. I mean, there are very few man-made objects that can do that right now, and and then let alone go in the water and fly. Right? There's no man-made objects that do that. So. Um, you know, it's pretty fascinating. So this stuff, I, I think in time, you know, when you look at the Aguadilla case from 2013 in the context of the information we're learning now in 2019 or 17, 18 and 19, they're kind of all related. And and so if you look at ufology and, and these cases from that 30,000 foot view and, and, you know, you can see that this stuff is connected. And I think that that will help move us forward, too, because we learn that stuff and then we build on it and we add to it. Yeah, those five observables are really a new driving force for me when I'm looking at this uh-huh. stuff. I, I think it's an incredible way to uh, to record the data of these things, like how they maneuver. We spend so much time, you know, talking about date and weather and this and that for a UFO case. But let's really look at the patterns of how these things are working. I, I think you're right, Shane. I think something can be gleaned for that for sure. And this video proved that. Yeah, even from like a, a perspective as a MUFON investigator now, you know, I look at, you know, how can you how, how can you define what a UFO is, right? I mean, we all kind of, you know, we we think we know, but, you know, this is a scientific an analysis and a, a demarcation of, you know, if this object observes these characteristics or exhibits them, then this is not conventional. I mean, that. That is awesome, and that that's only something that very recently has come to the fore that we can define, you know, what a UFO is by by its performance characteristics and those other things. So, um, you know, I think that's absolutely huge. And in spite of the fact that we've been at this for seventy years, we are continuing to make progress. And the more we bring science and technology into into the hunt, um, you know, we are making we're, we're at least you know checking items off the list that it is not this, it is not that. Right. Sooner or later, we're going to get down to a, a much more narrow window where we can say this is an, you know, a true unknown. Well said. Absolutely. All right. Let's move to the next one on the list. And that would be the CIA declassifying Area 51. So Area 51 has been in pop culture for a few decades now. But up until 2013, the government denied the top secret base even existed. In August of 2013, the National Security Archive at George Washington University posted a CIA document obtained through a Freedom of Information Act in which the name Area 51 was not redacted. And although the document wasn't the first to refer to Area 51 by its name, it essentially served as a sort of official outing or declassification of Area 51. And this story generated headlines around the world with the essential message that the CIA finally declassified Area 51. So this was huge at the time. And the headlines this thing generated were crazy. And again, up to this point, there were still you know, most people in the general public viewed Area 51 as something that just crazy conspiracy theorists talked about. They didn't think it was a real thing because the government said it wasn't a real thing. Absolutely. And this was also important. It sounded so lame to us because we were like, oh, we already know. 
but that's our circle. But this was really important because it was a step in kind of proving that at least Bob Lazar knew that piece of information before it was released to the public as well. And it was kind of sort of confirming a few things that were said in those initial interviews. So not only was the government saying, yes, this was the nickname, it had a lot of implication behind it. And that sort of set the ground for, uh, I'd say, interested parties to start running, uh, saying, well, there's a lot more merit to this particular uh, investigation of this secret base now. Yeah, and this story brought out Bob Lazar too, right? Remember the stories? Yeah. He, would, he would comment on it. He, you know, the um, mainstream media outlets would get quotes from him. And I remember at Open Minds, we wrote a story about it. It was something like, Bob Lazar is not impressed with the declassification <laughs> of Area 51. He's all, yeah, so what else is new? Like, he was, <laughs> so that's what I've been telling you. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember um, back in, I think it was 95, yeah, that's when they um, like those lawsuits against the base were made by like former yes, employees because yeah. of the like the toxic fumes and everything that they had. A lot of people were dying out there. So like the government had to acknowledge that when the lawsuit came about. Yeah. And I, I remember hearing like specifically an Air Force attorney saying, your honor, there is no name. There is no name for the operating location near Groom Lake. And that always gave me chills back when I heard about <laughs> yeah. that. But the fact that like through like freedom of information requests and lawsuits, that's how we finally got the CIA to acknowledge it being Area 51. So I remember my phone blowing up that day. I yep. don't know if it was the same for you guys. Yeah, Almost absolutely. as much as, you know, the current stuff cool. going on. So I loved it. I, I, I thought it was awesome. I think that's with yeah. with anything like this, as soon as it starts making headlines. Yeah, my phone, my email blew up. Um, friends who, you know, aren't paying attention to this stuff, but they thought for them it meant so much more than it did to me yeah. because <laughs> they were like, what is this? this? There actually is a base there? What's happening? <laughs> yeah. You have all the answers, don't you? Tell me what it is. <laughs> What it is a slight vindication, right? If not for Bob, but for even ufology. I mean, you know, we, we, we've all been throwing Area 51 around for, for a lot of decades. But, you know, for official confirmation does kind of feel good in that way, right? It gets it yeah. in the, the, the public public's, uh, public's mind, and then all of a sudden it becomes real. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, it's also one of the best first-person shooter arcade games out there I'm yes just <laughs> yes do you prefer area 51 or the follow-up s4 i did not know they made an yeah, s4 they have a That's second awesome. one i think it's called Holy i think it's called s4 shit. or site 4 yeah yeah they do have a, an area 51 2 basically that is so weird i love it i love yeah. it <laughs> and there's the one also that nick pope's part of right the more recent one, video game on there. Yes, I, I've got it. I'll, I'll have to look that up. Okay, for wait. You. I didn't. I did not know Nick Pope was doing some sort of video game action. <laughs> I think it was some. Either was he consulting on yeah, it, or did I think, he I think he consulted some, on it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. funny. That is awesome. What won't that guy do? Let's be honest. I mean that <laughs> yes. in the best of ways. Oh, yeah. I mean that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to the next one. So, what have you got for the next item on our list, Shane? Oh, this is the citizen hearing on disclosure. So when we think about it, the last congressional hearing dealing with the extraterrestrial issue was before the House Science and Aeronautics Committee in July of 1968. So, you know, obviously over 50 years ago. 
The citizen hearing on disclosure was a mock congressional hearing held in April and May of 2013 to do what they say the Congress has failed to do since 1968, and that is seek out the facts surrounding the most important issue of this or any other time, and that is evidence pointing toward an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race. So what they did, this is uh, uh, the work of Stephen Bassett, the Paradigm Research Group, and they assembled this uh, this hearing, uh, 42 persons, including researchers and military and political witnesses of rank and station. They came to the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., to testify before six former members of the United States Congress. And so they had this main ballroom set up in the National Press Club. It was configured to look like a Senate hearing room. Uh, There were press areas, audience areas, witnesses tables, committee tables, or, you know, professional uh, protocols for uh, congressional hearings that they followed as closely as possible. Um, they, the committee members, these former congressmen and congresswomen received uh, written statements from the witnesses and they heard oral statements and they were allowed to ask questions just in a typical hearing. Um, it was like 35 hours of testimony over five days. Um, and then the entire thing was filmed and that video is available to everyone um, on, on the ParadigmResearchGroup.org uh, website. And it, it is pretty fascinating. It's really historical, and it captures a lot of uh, testimony from people that, you know, eventually, probably in our lifetime, they'll be gone. And so th- this is, a you know, a historical record of that. Yeah, actually, we sent uh, one of our colleagues at the time, Antonio Huneas, uh was present at the citizen hearings and kind of gave us a, a behind the scenes look at what was happening. And I think that, yeah, the importance of this, it's a faux hearing. The former senators uh, and congressmen were paid to be there uh, or at least were offered money to be there. <laughs> not sure if mm-hmm. they actually got their payout or not, but uh, <laughs> you know, the, this is one of those things where it was, trying to set up a professional environment for lawmakers to seriously look at the fact that there is credible people uh, detailing very strange anomalous activity. And and so I think that the effort, well, it's kind of, you know, oh, it's a faux hearing. You know, why do we care? Well, we care because we're trying to get uh, people to take this phenomenon seriously. So that's my yeah, two cents well- on it. And look at like it kind of paved the way in some weird, you know, bastardized way that now actual senators in office are being briefed on mm-hmm. UFOs. So, I mean, I for as much as people may mock it because it was a mock hearing, I guess, uh, I thought, like Shane said, we now have these things on record from some of the most prominent witnesses out there. I mean, you know, you look at the Rendlesham guys. Jim Penniston and uh, John Burroughs, that was Mm -hmm. some of the most amazing testimony I've heard from them at those hearings. And that's one of the most pivotal cases we have to rely on in ufology. So I think it was really cool to see some of these people all in one room doing this and then to hear the reactions from the former congressmen and women. Um, Yes, they may have been paid, you know, to to maybe seem interested, but I do think all of them were genuinely interested interested in what they were hearing and in fact i know some of them went on to then like 
try to rally the troops and get actual congressmen to look at this. So, yeah, I thought it was a a valiant effort for sure. It did seem like they were genuinely interested. And, uh, you know, you mentioned them being paid. And unfortunately, there was plenty of of mainstream press coverage that focused on that fact about how the, the dollar amount that they were paid to sit and listen to crazy UFOs. But uh, that was the unfortunate part about it. But it did generate a lot of positive headlines. And I I guess we should point out, too, that uh, Ruben Langdon and even Jeremy Corbell uh, played a big role in in the execution of the the citizen hearing as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think, you know, just looking back on it now, it's it was a very novel approach on the issue of disclosure, right? So for, you know, 70 years, we've been banging away trying to get something out of the government. It was just a different way to try and see if we could shake something loose. So I give give Stephen Bassett credit for that, thinking out of the box and trying something really different. And and I think, you know, it, it, it did produce some meaningful re- results, not what we wanted, but, you know, still meaningful results. So, you know, at least kudos to him for trying something different and, and um you know, it's definitely, I think, great viewing and something everybody should have a look at. Yeah, definitely. And and uh, yeah, citizenhearing.org is another place you can go watch all that testimony. Pretty fascinating stuff. So let's yep. move on to the next item, counting down our list. Ryan, what have you got? <sighs> You've got our favorite, don't you? This is our okay. favorite on the list. I don't know what I did to deserve this, but okay, okay, here we go. Um, Bear with me, guys. I'm going to try to get through this convoluted story uh, as quickly as possible. Um, This happened back in May of 2015 when our favorite Mexican UFO researcher, Jaime Musan, uh, he unveiled to the world what he says were slides and images of an alien from the Roswell UFO crash. He presented this to a huge audience at a stadium in Mexico City and streamed it across the world. Uh, for a price, I might add. Um, the images, they first became known by a man named Adam Dew, who brought them to Musan and several other Roswell investigators, including Don Schmidt and Tom Carey. And for almost a year, I think, they were kind of teasing this thing and promoting the idea that they had this bombshell evidence that would blow the entire Roswell incident wide open. And then... The day in May came, and we all saw the images, and I think all of us were a little less than satisfied. The um, the image showed a very blurry image of a small being lying on a slab in front of some sort of glass casing, I believe, uh, mm-hmm. if I'm looking at the picture right. There was a placard that sat below it, but um, could not be read by the human eye, of course. Uh, blurry photos seem to be a staple <laughs> for the UFO field, but... Uh, <laughs> For over two hours at this packed stadium and a horribly streamed audience, Musan invited researchers and scientists to speak, some of which actually backed up the images, gave us a play-by-play of how they supposedly came to be and everything. And for some reason, Richard Dolan was Mm -hmm. there. He never thought the image was alien, but he was still there speaking. I will never forgive him for that. But – one slide was shown at the event, and later Hame Misan would post a second image on his Twitter account. So within 48 hours of this, a group of UFO researchers and tech-savvy individuals coined the Roswell Slides Research Group, they were able to deblur the image and figure out that the placard on the image said, mummified body of a two-year-old boy. 
So immediately, some of the people started getting defensive that were involved, saying that the, the blurred photo is fake, this, that, this, that. Um, but then more of the uh, the placard was deblurred, and it read, At the time of the burial, the body was clothed in a slipcover cotton shirt. Burial wrappings consisted of three small blankets. And the last line, which kind of blew this all wide open, was, quote, loaned by Mr. S.L. Palmer, San Francisco, California. So this led other researchers to then look into it, and they found out that this guy, S.L. Palmer, um, had given this mummy that he'd found uh, to this museum, the museum in Mesa Verde. Uh, so this kind of buried, you know, buried the hatchet on this whole thing. It clearly wasn't alien. It was a mummified body. And since then, mostly all involved have issued public apologies for getting everyone's hopes up. Um you know, Tom Carey, Don Schmidt said, sorry, we got our passion, got the best of us. Um, Hami Masan, I don't really know where he stands on all this today. But the main person that kind of started this all, Adam Dew, uh, is like nowhere to be found. He was supposed <laughs> to come out with a documentary about mm-hmm. it. Never happened. Uh, we never saw these crystal clear copies mm-hmm. that Adam supposedly has of these images either. Um, so, yeah, I think this is a huge black eye on the UFO community, mm-hmm. um, this entire thing. And it really goes to show that when your passion and beliefs get ahead of you, it can really, really look bad for the rest of us. So yeah, whew, that was, that was right. Well, UFOs are so just, just the nature of UFOs with, with the, the mystery that they are, it's just so ridiculous for a researcher to come out and make grand claims. And both, I mean, everybody involved in this should have known better. Certainly not the individual who owned these things, claimed to find them in a cigar box in a house or whatever he did, um, and wanted to make a documentary with it. He's not a UFO researcher, but the UFO researchers involved should have known better than to hype this thing up, make grand claims, and, and, and affirmatively say this was absolutely something. We, 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 know, we know better, right? I mean, that, well, we, go ahead. I was just going to say, but that's happened so many times in this decade you know it's not it has and that's what i'm saying i mean people should people should learn and you can't make these grand claims because we're dealing with something so mysterious so unknown and being a responsible researcher you, you just can't make claims like that unless you have definitive proof to back it up these guys were operating under assumptions they were operating under things that they'd been told um they didn't see the test for themselves they didn't get testing done by themselves they were being told things that Jaime was telling them that had been done by questionable doctors and all sorts of weird things with this whole case but they didn't personally know they hadn't done the research on it and they were hyping this thing from the stage you know at conferences and things saying we have definitive proof that Roswell was alien and all this stuff really hyping it up and it just came back and slapped him so hard in the face, you know. It's it's hard to believe that they managed to you know recuperate from that. I mean, it was it was a dirty time for a while. I mean, even Rich Dolan was getting so much shit, and rightfully so. I mean, everybody involved with this it was just such an embarrassing debacle that people would make grand claims without you know being cautious, without putting the thing out there saying, "Hey, we found something interesting. It might be extraterrestrial. We don't know, but we're going to show you something." And we're working on this. We'll figure it out. We'll do testing, whatever we have to do to figure it out. But here's an interesting development in the case. 
Right. And I think this one really is an example of like how our field gets amnesia so yeah. easily. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, I like to compare this, Jason, kind of to um, uh, our good friend and colleague, Peter Robbins. I mean, this guy based almost half his career yeah. on one case, yeah. the Rendlesham case. And then to come to find out, like the guy he worked with may have been less than honest yeah. about his involvement. And what did Peter do? He he admitted to it. He like stood up, he manned up as it were. And he said, look, I messed yeah. up and I want to move on from that. And I want to do the right thing. And uh, let's just keep working at this. When members of this, uh, whether they issued an apology or not, uh, still aren't owning up to it, in my opinion, in terms of like how detrimental this was. But again, like any story, it'll fade into obscurity like they all do. But uh, this was more an example of good diligent research by you know civilians and by like people behind their computers this roswell slides research group jumped into uh, action i have got to thank them they did amazing amazing work and that's what we need well i'm sure for for like richard and tom and don that this case falls on a on a top 10 list of a different kind (laughs) (laughs) but but like i mean this decade has been a mark of like alleged alien mummies Mm. and this is not the only embarrassing one and since we're not covering them uh gonna do my due diligence and this is very similar to um the hype that was around uh, the atacama uh mummy that was oh yeah little ada that was (laughs) Baby Yoda, not to be mistaken for Baby Yoda. Um, right. Huge in the news. And then, unfortunately, I really, w- like, luckily my name isn't totally associated with this, but Jason and I had to deal with Pepe, mm-hmm. the squirrel monkey. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. That was that was advertised as being an alien mummy, also from Jaime Musan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there, there it, this is something that keeps appearing, uh, and especially... With items that look strange, that are mummified, we don't know what it is. Let's not immediately, just because it looks strange, jump to the extraterrestrial conclusion. I think that's the most important thing any of us can do. Like we say, you know, due diligence on research, put the science behind it. Then if it comes back saying, holy shit, this is legitimately extraterrestrial in nature, then let's tell the world. When I, one day, if I decide to, to reach the point to where I just want to completely trash my credibility and, you know, throw myself down the toilet, I'm going to pull out my old photos with Pepe, with me <laughs> holding Pepe and kissing Pepe and everything. I'll post them around and tell people that I found an alien. People will remember. Yeah. (laughs) Who knows? Maybe I could. Yeah, I could go back to some people and and get some get some money and get a circus going. It'd be great. I'm sure we all have some photos from our UFO days that we don't want the public to see (laughs) at this point. Oh, I posted most of them publicly, but making fun of it. But if if I were to uh, be be a, a sleazy person and pass try to pass them off as real, there there would be some biters. Oh, yeah, unfortunately, that is so true. Yeah. All right. Well, the next item on our list was tremendously publicly visible. And we're talking about Hillary Clinton. So as she started hitting the campaign trail in her push for the White House, Hillary Clinton made considerable headlines related to UFOs in 2016. 
Hillary and her husband, former U.S. President Bill Clinton, are very vocal about their interest in UFOs. And during one of her publicity stops, when she was asked about UFOs, she commented, quote, I think we may have been visited already. We don't know for sure, end quote. And who could forget her appearance on Jimmy Come Alive, where she stated, yeah. quote, I would like us to go into those files and hopefully make as much of that public as possible. If there's nothing there, let's tell the people there's nothing there, end quote. Then there was the moment on that show when she explained to Kimmel that, quote, unidentified aerial phenomena, or UAP, is the modern nomenclature for UFOs. Bill Clinton's chief of staff, John Podesta, was also Hillary's campaign chairman. This former counselor to President Obama is a strong advocate for government transparency when it comes to knowledge of UFOs and files related to UFO phenomena. When Podesta left the White House, he began working on Clinton's campaign, and he publicly voiced regret over not being able to get the government UFO files released to the public. While on the campaign trail in 2016, when asked about Podesta, Hillary stated, quote, he has made me personally pledge we are going to get the information out, end quote. She continued, quote, one way or another, maybe we could have like a task force, go to Area 51, end quote. Of course, Podesta generated considerable UFO headlines of his own, including those related to WikiLeaks, publishing his hacked emails, and some of those emails contained communications with Tom DeLonge about UFOs. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, Hillary certainly generated countless UFO-related headlines around that time. That was pretty fun. Also, another headline she generated, unless somehow I missed that you said that, is, uh, you know, the photo came out of her walking around with Lawrence Rockefeller, and she was holding a book that everyone freaked out right. over. Oh, yeah. And they were, they were like, what is it? And it finally came to light that the book was Paul Davies' Are We Alone? Uh, and people went through the roof with that because that meant she was actively talking about mm -hmm. extraterrestrial life with Lawrence Rockefeller and walking around his estate. Yeah. That happened prior to this decade. But yes. the big solving of what the book was right. uh, came out. Yep. Yeah, and she kind of, again, paved the way for other politicians like mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders, Andrew Yang. They both have said like on the campaign run, like, oh, yeah, totally. I'll disclose any info on that. We all know like they'll they all say that and nothing yeah. ever happens. But uh, it was cool to see other, um, you know, other representatives saying stuff about like, yeah, totally. I'll look into the topic. Well, so, and God bless cool. Jimmy Kimmel. You know, that's his thing. Every politician who comes on, every president yeah, you know, he loves asking about UFOs. He's done that with GW. He did that with Obama. Mm -hmm. He did that with Bill Clinton. So that's well. He's openly stated he will always ask that oh, question. Yeah. Yeah. He said, "I will always to every presidential hopeful that is my number one yeah. question." And he, <laughs> he always so says awesome. that too. He's all, "If if I were elected president, the first thing I'd do is run in and say, tell me about the UFOs.'" <laughs> I love Jimmy Kimmel. Love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, love it. Yep, put him as your write-in vote, guys. <laughs> All right, next on the list. Maureen, what is next? So some of the most exciting things that have happened over the last decade are a continuance of commercial flights seeing UFOs, um, especially near the end of 2017 and the beginning of 2018. There were some really exciting incidents 
of commercial pilots and unidentified flying objects. And these were reports that generated headlines that went all over the world. An unidentified craft was seen on October 25th, 2017 in the sky near the border of California and Oregon. The UFO was seen visually by several commercial pilots in the sky, and they worked with ground controllers in an attempt to identify it. This unidentified white craft was seen by several pilots flying over Oregon, and fighter jets were scrambled to intercept and identify the unknown craft, but they were unsuccessful in locating it. The FAA and NORAD confirmed the incident occurred, so we have official backing that this is, is something that happened. The craft was large enough to be seen at a distance by commercial traffic, reportedly traveled at incredible speeds, and it had limited radar reflectivity and was capable of executing high-G maneuvers. So nobody knows what this is. And this was really crazy. They, you know, thought maybe it was a, a drug plane, but it wasn't. So it traveled off and they can't find it. Um, the fact that fighter jets are scrambled is really cool. And a similar incident occurred on the afternoon of February 24th in 2018, and when two commercial airliners independently spotted a UFO. This took place in southeastern Arizona, near the near Mexico border, and the crews aboard these planes communicated with the Albuquerque Center Air Traffic Control, reporting their visual sighting as it took place. And the entire incident for this one lasted only about six minutes. So... One of the most important things about these commercial sightings and why we get really excited about them is because, A, pilots are trained to uh, look for aircraft in the sky, uh, ground controls trained to follow craft, and obviously you're supposed to have your flight path in. Um, so when unknown objects are spotted by these, you also have mass witnesses and you have a lot of science at your disposal already uh, in order to try and identify something well, it's still in the air. And uh, I know with the, the Oregon, California, they were really worried, you know, that, like I said, it was drug trafficker uh, headed up to the Canadian border. But this this white object just basically disappeared after all these people had seen it. And the fighter jets, I mean, fighter jets move at incredible speeds, but not fast yeah, enough. Yeah, fighter jets couldn't find it. They went up and they're all... um. Hello. Yeah, that is crazy. <laughs> and one of the coolest thing about both of these cases is thanks to the incredible work of Tyler Rogaway, we have all of the FAA recording from the communication with all of these pilots, with FAA, with NORAD, with the sort of follow-up after the event of them trying to piece together the puzzle to figure out what the hell happened. It's so fascinating to listen to just the process of them trying to deal with a UFO in the sky. And these both generated so many headlines. And this is another example of something reaching just the general public, you know, pop culture. I can't tell you how many times I was asked about this, these cases by people who aren't into UFOs. They would come to me and say, Hey, so what's the deal with these, the, the, the planes that were, were over Oregon? What, what, what's the deal with that? It was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I know the, the other one that, made a lot of headlines too was the one in ireland, was it yeah. ireland by the commercial pilots that one too had uh some audio and you can tell like all these flight tower operators and even the pilots like they are really dumbfounded by what they're seeing and they use the term ufo many many times which used to be a huge stigma you never said that word when you're up there but it seems that that might be changing a little bit as these cases and these phenomena are plaguing more and more of our commercial right. pilots. 
Yeah, you would think, too, with uh, the way the TTSA and its popularity and unidentified and those sorts of things that now, uh, and of course, with Fox News and Tucker Carlson and those, that, you know, the media is warming up a little bit to this and feels a little bit safer to, to report and probably not to mention the competition from the likes of, you know, Tyler Rogaway and, and those sorts uh, of publications as well. Right, and you look at, like, cases back the japan airlines case you know taro mm-hmm. she's like put on desk duty after reporting ufo i don't see that happening anymore right. i'm sure their careers are right. just fine right. after reporting these things because times have changed and yeah. these things are more and more common and i you know that kind of leads into our next well story, and yeah good point ryan and, and another thing i think you know we're we we live in an era of cya right so I think a lot of these flight controllers, mm-hmm. these pilots, they don't want to be responsible if something happens. So to cover their asses, they're going to report it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we're getting into things that took place much more recently. So the next item on our list will likely be fresh in your mind. And of course, we're talking about ATIP and TTSA. So on Wednesday, October 11th, 2017, Transmedia Company to the Stars hosted a live stream event during which founder Tom DeLong announced a new endeavor for the company which was to the Stars Academy of Arts and Science. TTSA has been the source of countless global headlines since its launch, including the well-known New York Times story published on December 15, 2017, that revealed the Pentagon's contemporary UFO study known as the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. Don't forget those three Navy UFO videos. Modification to the Navy's UFO reporting policy, government partnerships related to testing exotic material, and a UFO TV show on the History Channel. All these things generated multiple stories by media outlets around the world, and all are a result of the work of To The Stars Academy. Pretty remarkable how much that is just monopolized. Really, uh, the bulk of the UFO community and and the things we talk about, but UFO-related headlines that have been generated. Yeah, it's, I mean, it it is the face of ufology. There's no way to get around it. Um, We can thank Tom DeLonge for giving the topic, like, I think the uh, it's just dues, but at the same time, it's like when you have this one narrative out there now, it's tough. It's It's tough to be, like, you know the the signal again amongst all the noise yeah absolutely and and that's true too to to an extent if you think about it it's like we're kind of uh being blinded to a lot of other potential stories yes. that are probably happening right now mm-hmm. uh and we're in the dark because the news is focusing all on all on this one segment so got to keep our ears open to the the underground stuff happening yeah almost four years now we're talking about the fucking tic tac like come on let's yeah. move on <laughs> It'll happen. It'll happen. Yep. But, you know, I, I think it's going to take and, you know, we we in the community, the UFO community, like to do a lot of bitching and moaning about mainstream media and, you know, them not giving the attention to UFOs that it deserves. But at the same time, you, you know, time shift and we get you know some people from the UFO community writing for mainstream publications and they really control the power. I mean, we've all written for mm-hmm. mainstream publications and know how the, the media works. And, you know, you really do have a lot of power in the stories that you choose to write. And we're seeing right now from many of the, the UFO researchers, people from the UFO community who are writing for mainstream outlets are really choosing just to write stories about things related to TTSA. 
when there are so many other things happening. And I, I have to give credit, and, and I do have to point out the big void that has been in UFO reporting since Lee Spiegel left the Huffington Post. Uh, Lee Spiegel yep. would certainly cover yeah. the big stories, but he would also find other smaller unknown stories to talk about. He would also do true investigative journalism and use his sources and go after stories and do updates on those stories and really dig in and pull out some really fascinating things going on. And I think the UFO community is really missing that right now, a a true just general journalist who digs in and approaches this topic like a journalist and doesn't just focus on what they see posted on Facebook and UFO groups. You know, there's a lot more to UFOs than what's trending right now among UFO people. We miss you, Lee. miss you, Lee. (laughs) But he'll be coming back with a storm. I mean, he's got his podcast right now. Um, That's cool. And got the great film with James Fox that we're going to get in 2020. So super excited. Okay, I've been living under a rock. I did not know Lee had a podcast. Can you please drop a... Yes, we will certainly that. post a link to Lee's <laughs> podcast for sure. Yeah, one one cool thing though about the whole um, Nimitz case and the TTSA, and I don't know if it's you know it's probably a combination of like the case itself and the, um, but also the timing that you know I I I do worry like you say Ryan too is you know too much focus on the singular thing, and and if it gets resolved, I mean I've even thought of this: what if what if it gets resolved in a way like it, it's identified? Mm-hmm. Like, let's just say it is some program. Um, w- will that just all of a sudden, you know, delegitimize everything that everything else other than that? You know, do we go back to the whole thing we've been experiencing for 70 years or not? I mean, that is a little bit of worry. But, you know, I also appreciate the, the fact that, you know, we needed something different to happen. You know, we've been plugging away for, you know, these 70 years and not really getting anywhere. And and things really are different because of this case and this issue and maybe the way it came out. And maybe it is a bit about TS, TTSA and ATIP and all those things. But, I mean, the fact is it it, it, is, it has changed things. Um, and I think that's pretty cool and exciting. But I think you're right. We'll also have to be careful and watchful that it just doesn't change things in a, in a negative way where we do disregard everything else that's happening because there's still a ton of stuff happens every single Day, so I think I the burden falls on it. us. We need it, you know, in the community. We have to yeah. step up, right? We can sit here and, and, and bitch and moan about it. Um, you know, we all still talk about TTSA because it is important things that are happening. It is it is mm-hmm. newsworthy and relevant and people should know about it. But we also have to do our work and and highlight other things and you know, not not get caught up in this singular mindset. And, and continue painting that picture mm-hmm. that only one thing is happening. I've said it before, and I applaud every effort that anybody's doing. You know, I think TTSA is doing mm-hmm. fantastic stuff. I wish them all the luck with everything they do. That's great. I'm glad they're doing it. I think SETI is great. People like to hate on SETI. Mm-hmm. They're all, oh, what a waste of time. What a waste of money. Hey, I'm glad somebody's doing that. Somebody should be doing all the things all the time. And I'm glad when somebody <laughs> steps up and wants to take this piece and work on that or take this piece and yeah, focus on point. that. We need all these things going at the same time. And when you have somebody who steps up and wants to do part of that, I celebrate that. And I think that's wonderful. We all have to mm-hmm. do our part. It doesn't hurt 
us individually or as a whole with the UFO community if there's one group doing something that's getting more visibility than what we're doing. That's just pride that gets in the way, and that hurts research. Yep, yep. Well we said. need competition. That's why there's a Dunkin' Donuts across <laughs> from Starbucks. Like, yeah. we need to get that swift kick in the ass every now and again. And Jason, I do have to add, like, above my desk right now, I'm not kidding you, I literally have, we need all the things all the oh, time. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I love that, my Ryan. Desk. I'll send I love you a that. Yeah, I think that's the mantra of yes. this decade. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move into the last thing on our list. Finally, <laughs> oh, we can't talk about the top 10 UFO-related stories of the decade without mentioning Storm Area 51. Storm Area 51 started as a joke by college student Maddie Roberts. He created a Facebook event on June 27th, 2019, titled Storm Area 51. They can't stop all of us. Roberts later acknowledged that he created the event as a joke after watching Area 51 whistleblower Bob Lazar and filmmaker Jeremy Corbell on the Joe Rogan experience. But still, millions of people said they were going to this event. The media went crazy with this story. The military and local authorities got freaked out, and local residents were pretty darn unhappy with the thought of millions of people descending on their properties in rural Nevada. The event quickly morphed into a festival which then morphed into multiple festivals. Then, just a week before the event, Maddie Roberts pulled out of the event that he'd been planning with the Little Alien in Rachel, Nevada, and did a different event. So, yeah, he slopped together something in downtown Las Vegas instead. Although the few thousand people who turned out for this event had fun at uh, really what was a silly weekend, the whole debacle was publicly considered a flop. And many of the resulting headlines didn't sugarcoat it either. They were headlines like, Storm Area 51 brings fewer alien enthusiasts than authorities expected. Area 51 storming to see aliens fails to materialize. And Storm Area 51 base camp ends early due to low attendance. Just a few of the headlines that painted the unfortunate picture. The pop culture effect of this thing is still being seen. We recently learned that... Now, I'm citing my sources here, guys, because I'm responsible. But we recently learned that Pornhub's 2019 year in review revealed that alien was the second most popular search term on the porn website for the year. Oh, my God. Pornhub <laughs> also revealed that searches for the term Area 51 surged from zero to 160,000 just a few days after the Facebook event went viral. And if you're not aroused by stats from a porn site, maybe <laughs> Google will do it for you. According to Google's year in search 2019 data, Area 51 raid was the year's fourth biggest trending news story. And that's not all. What is Area 51 was the top what is question of the year on Google. And where is our Area 51 was the third most popular where is question of the year on Google. That's insane. Just showing the impact that this silly little yeah. event had on the general public and on pop culture. It's yeah. unfortunate. Yeah, it really is, Maureen. I was going to say the same thing. I mean, cool, mm -hmm. fun. Like, I loved sharing the memes and everything, but like... Imagine if something spread this this much uh, 
that like benefited anyone, anyone in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like um, sick and ailing people, or poor people, or the 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 environment. Like, just imagine what kind of impact that could have. Instead, it was a stupid meme about Area Fifty. <laughs> uh, it hurts me, but I guess this is a very good segue to drop the point that we net, we didn't say top ten most credible UFO sightings of the last decade. These are <laughs> these are ones that generated buzz. Yeah, that, right, generated yeah, hey. buzz. And I think that's yeah. important to note because we're going to get people saying, what? How are you listing this top yes. 10 listing? Plus, I had to throw that one in there because it gave me an excuse to cite Pornhub. That's true. When else? I'm sure we'll do it do again on, sometime. Uh, but uh, it is a first for this show, <laughs> citing, citing porn, porn stats. So, again, it's pretty oh, challenging to put together the list for a show like this because there are so many UFO-related stories making headlines every year. Trimming it down to the best stories is tough. A few of the other stories we considered adding were the Baltic Sea UFO. If you remember that one, that generated a lot of headlines, primarily because this random thing Mm -hmm. that these treasure hunters found at the bottom of the ocean looked like the Millennium Falcon. So that generated its own headlines right there because of the Star Wars tie-in. There there was also a great case with hundreds of UFOs along India's border in 2012. And that was an ongoing case that, uh, you know, there were multiple uh, updates as the case was being investigated by the government, and that went unsolved. It was a fascinating case to follow and one of my favorites, certainly, of the decade. Then there were the MOD UFO files. The MOD claims they released all of their UFO files, and that was something to follow throughout multiple years as they gradually released batches of incredible UFO files from their their UFO desk when they were collecting and investigating UFOs. So that was fascinating. Um, then there was Annie Jacobson. That was one that generated a lot of headlines, too, with her book that came out about Area 51 and the infamous... Uh, chapter about Roswell, where she claimed that the Roswell bodies that were recovered, allegedly recovered in Roswell, were those of mutilated children done by Joseph Mengele. So that uh, generated quite a stir, um, created headlines, and got a lot of uh, negative response from the UFO community, especially by one Stan Friedman, who penned a nice uh, rebuttal to her basically calling her crazy. Yeah, I guess we should mention, too, you like the passing of Stanton Friedman yes. being a big one this decade, too. Yeah. Yeah, and, and maybe mm-hmm. maybe that's something that uh, in future years I might do for, for year reviews, talking about things that were were big news for the UFO community, you know, certain losses mm-hmm. in the community. And we've certainly seen a lot of those. We're, we're seeing them more, more and more as time passes because a lot of, you know, the old researchers from the beginning of the modern UFO era are, are nearing their end. So it's going to happen. Well, citizens, that's going to do it for this episode. It's been another fun year of this show, and we can't wait to fill your ears with more strange and fascinating UFO content in 2020. You can find more episodes of Unknown on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. Subscribe on your favorite podcast provider so you're notified when we publish new episodes. Of course, you can find this show at RoguePlanet.tv, because Unknown is a Rogue Planet production. RoguePlanet.tv is your home for all the strange. 
Big thanks to our talented friend and fellow Rogue Planeteer, Caleb Hanks, for the show's intro and outro music. Check out all his work at theclerkchronicles.com. Thanks again for hanging out with us today, and a sincere thanks from all of us for listening to Unknown this past year. I'm Jason McClellan. I'm Maria Nelsberry. I'm Ryan Sprague. And I'm Shane Hurd. Do us a favor, friends. Always treat the UFO subject with the cautious and responsible skepticism it deserves. Question everything. Have the courage to form your own opinions. Keep truth as the focus of your quest, even if the truth conflicts with your opinions. And, of course, stay strange. And happy holidays.